0: All right, so like I said this morning, we are going to be addressing and unpacking the subject of prayer. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at prayer under three headings, okay? Three very important essential headings. Okay, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is we are going to look at the pitfalls of prayer, the pitfalls of prayer. After we look at the pitfalls, then we're going to take a a, a few minutes to look at the model for prayer, the model for prayer. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the position of prayer. So we're looking at the pitfalls, the model and the position. So let's begin by looking at the pitfalls of prayer. In this passage, Jesus begins in verses 5 through 7, 5 through 8, Jesus begins by telling us, before he tells us how to pray, he first tells us how not to pray, okay? He's the ultimate teacher, and so he knows that if you're going to pray correctly, not only do you have to know how to pray, but you also have to know how not to pray, okay? So Jesus begins by telling us that there are two pitfalls that we have to avoid if we are going to pray the prayers that honor God. There's two types of prayers that you have to avoid at all costs if you want your prayer life to be what it needs to be. The first type of prayer that you need to avoid are the outward prayers. Outward prayers. We'll look at that in a second. And then the second type of prayer that you need to avoid are the inward prayers. So outward prayers and inward prayers. And what we're going to see is that what Jesus says, the way we should be praying is upward prayers. Not outward Or inward, but upward, okay? So the first type of pitfall, the first pitfall that you can fall into in prayer is outward prayers. Look what it says in verses five through six. Let me reread it for you. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Jesus says that the first type of prayer that you should be avoiding at all costs is the outward prayer. Now, let me give you some context because I think it's easy for us as modern day Americans to take our culture and force it onto Jesus's culture. But I want to give you some context because Jesus is talking about very real life specific situations. One of the things that was common in Jesus' day, one of the things that was very prominent in Jesus' day was prayer. The Jews were all about prayer. And the religious leaders were like the varsity of prayer. Okay? And they were so committed to it, in fact, that they would pray three times a day. At 9 a.m., at 12 p.m., and at 3 p.m. All the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, what they would do is at 9, at 12, and at 3, they would pray. And they were so committed to it that they can be walking down the street, and if 9 o'clock hit or 12 p.m. hit or 3 p.m., they would stop where they were, and they would just start praying, okay? Now, now here's the thing. Jesus is not condemning the location. You would think when you first read it that he's saying you shouldn't be standing, you shouldn't be in synagogues, and you shouldn't be in street corners. Here's the thing, here's the thing. The synagogue was really the only place you really could pray because they didn't have churches. They had synagogues. And so it was very common to pray in the synagogue. It was very common to stand up and pray in the synagogue. There was nothing wrong with that, okay? But here's what's really interesting about the word street. It says on the street corners. There are are two Greek words for the word street. There's one Greek word that's like a little back alley, like a little corner that no one knows where it's at, okay? But the Greek word that's used here for street is a major intersection near the town square, okay? Okay? So these, so these brothers weren't in the boonies. They would, they, would, they would specifically plan their day so that at 9, at 12, and at 3, they were on, uh, on Grand Avenue. You know, they were on Michigan Avenue. They're like, oh, wait, what am I doing here? Let me just go ahead and pray where everybody can see me. See? So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus, it almost seems like he's going after the location. But what he's actually doing is he's going after their motivation. Okay, Because their motivation is told to us. It says they they do it so they may be seen by others. In other words, their prayer is an outward prayer. They're praying not to get an answer from God, but to get approval from people. Let me say that again. They were praying not to get an answer from God, but to get approval from people. As a result of that, Jesus says those prayers should be avoided at all costs. Because when you pray like that, you're not praying to Jesus, you're praying to others. Okay? This is very important. That's why he uses the word hypocrite. The word hypocrite is a pretty strong word in our language, but it doesn't even hold a candle to what it meant in Jesus' day. The word hypocrite meant actor or pretender. It literally meant in the Greek to speak out from under. So, so, so in Jesus' day, one of the things that actors would do, because they didn't have theaters the way we have theaters, they would have these big ampli, ample theaters they were, were outside, and you would, what you would do is you would stand on the stage and you would have to project your voice so that everybody would hear. And then crowds would show up as, as the show went on. But they actually, a lot of them would wear masks. And so the word hypocrite literally means in Greek to speak out from under a mask. You are an actor, a pretender, speaking out from under a mask. Why were they being hypocrites? Well, the reason why they were being hypocrites is because they were doing something publicly that wasn't actually happening privately. Jesus says, listen to this. He says, if you don't pray privately, then it's better for you not to pray publicly. Well, The Bible says in Revelation that God prefers you to be cold or hot, but not lukewarm. So Jesus isn't condemning the people that don't pray at all. He's condemning the people that pray publicly, but don't pray privately. So you're a pagan at the house, but you're Billy Graham at church. Okay? We need to avoid outward prayers. Prayers that are for the, intention, the attention and the approval and the applause of people. We need to avoid those at all costs. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't know if those are the type of prayers I pray. How can I know if I am struggling with this pitfall? How can I know if this is a prayer that I am currently struggling with? Well, let me tell you, I'm glad you asked, okay? There are certain symptoms that you display when you are struggling with this type of prayer, okay? Okay? There are certain symptoms that you display. The first one is that you could tell, you could look at, is your time. Here's what I mean by time: when you look at the percentage of time that you pray. If the percentage of time that you pray is more public than private, then you're struggling with this prayer. So, if 80% of the time you pray is when people are around, and the other 20% is just if things are falling apart and you need to break glass in case of emergency, then you're probably struggling with this this type of prayer. Okay. Because, because, man, man, you, 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 you a at, at small group and, and at Bible study and, and at church, and, man, I, I, can live it. I can live it out. But if, if percentage-wise, if, if, if there's more praying publicly, if the only time you pray is when you're about to eat dinner, if the only time you pray is when you're putting your kids to sleep, if the only time you pray is when, you know, the family's over and you want to pr- look spiritual on the holidays, if that's the only time you're praying, if the majority of your prayer is happening in public, then you are struggling with this. Jesus is saying, all I'm asking you to do is be consistent. If you don't have time for me when you're alone, don't act like you have time for me in front of people. Just be consistent. Be who you actually are. That's what he's saying. Okay? So so the first symptom is how you spend your time praying. What percentage are you praying publicly and and, and privately. The the other symptom, and guys, this is when it's important, is, is, is your identity. One of the things that people who pray these type of prayers suffer is they suffer with what Paul Tripp calls identity amnesia, okay? Here's what identity amnesia is. The Bible says that when you place your faith in Jesus, God becomes your father, so you become his child. When you struggle with identity amnesia, you forget you're a child, you start acting like an orphan, and so when you pray, you go looking for in other people what you already have in Jesus, so so, so so, one of the symptoms that you should be displaying if you struggle with this kind of prayer is that you find yourself, when you pray, being like, man, I hope someone likes this. I hope someone approves of me. I hope I look spiritual. The reason why you are empty, the reason why you need to be filled by others is because you haven't allowed the gospel to fill you. You have forgotten your identity. You have forgotten you're a child, and so you're praying like an orphan. Okay? So, so that's another way that you can tell. You know another symptom? This is a really important symptom. Here's another symptom. It's, it's, it's kind of like when, well, let me put this. You know that you're struggling with praying privately when whenever you're asked to pray publicly, you freak out. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that, I know obviously when you're new to it, it's, it's their struggles. I'm not saying it's not, it's easy to pray publicly. It's not. But, but here's the thing. It doesn't matter how many people are in front of you. If you're used to praying to God, then you close your eyes and you just start talking to Jesus. It doesn't matter who's in front of you, right? But if someone, someone asks you to pray, and you're like, oh, uh, 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 no, I can't. No, that's not me. Da, da, da. Well, what it is is you're more worried about them than you are about him. You see? That, that's why that's so dangerous because that'll actually tell you and actually, one of my good friends, he tells me that whenever he meets with people to counsel them, he always has the person that he's counseling pray. So at the end of the time together, he's like, hey, can you pray for us? He says he does it for two reasons. One, because he wants to know if the person actually listened to what he just told them during the counseling. But two, he says he does it because you can tell a lot about a person when they pray publicly. It's like when you're around a bad marriage. Like when you're around a bad marriage, you can tell. Like you can tell that they're kind of putting on a show. Like they're talking to each other, they're holding each other, but it's all just like, yeah, you know, that's not real. I can tell you guys are just avoiding each other at home. That's not a real relationship. It's like you have to overcompensate because you know it's falling apart at the house. That's how it is with prayer. That's how it is with prayer. Listen, if the only time I talk to my wife, if the only time I hugged my wife was at church, then my marriage is falling apart, okay? But how many times do we do that with God? How many times do I do that with God? This is not me just casting stones. How many times do I do that with God? See, we all struggle with this. And you know, and the last symptom that you can look at to determine if you're praying these kind of prayers is the word reward. Jesus brings up the word reward a couple times. Here's what's interesting about the word uh, reward. He says, one of the things you would think Jesus is saying, you would think he would be saying this type of prayer is not effective at all. This type of prayer should be avoided at all costs. It causes, it has no fruit, no reward. He doesn't say that. He says, actually, this type of prayer is very effective if you're looking for a particular reward. The question is, what reward are you looking for? okay. So, so when you pray, are you looking for the acceptance of others, or are you looking for an answer from God? I don't know about you, but I actually would rather have an answer from God than the acceptance of others. But so often, I find myself in front of people, they're like, "Ah, God, you can answer if you want. I just got to look good right now." So your reward matters. What is your reward? Jesus says, "Look, if the reward is to be applauded, is if the reward is to be recognized, then this is a very effective way to do it." The question is, what is your reward? What is the thing that you are actually looking for? And here's the thing, guys. The, the thing about pastors more than any other profession is, is that pastors are constantly tempted to pray for the, the, the approval of people and not for the, the, the answer from God. That's always a temptation because i got to pray everywhere I go, I gotta, whether it's funerals or weddings or, or parties. At my, my family parties, it's like no one else can talk to God. Like I'm the only person that can talk to God. Like they literally won't eat until I show up. Like, oh, Will's here. Now we can pray for the food. And one of the things that can happen when when that's your profession is that you can become a professional prayer person. I'm the professional prayer guy. You need prayer, I'm the guy. I don't need Jesus for myself, but I can help you connect him. I can connect you if you need a connection, okay? One of the things that can happen as a pastor, if I'm not careful, is the Bible calls me as your spiritual leader to be a tour guide, not a travel agent. Here's what I mean. A travel agent, you go to a travel agent, they're like, where do you want to go? Oh, you want to go to Mexico? Let me get you the best place. I'm going to get you a nice place. You're going to go. And when you get there, it's going to be all inclusive and you're going to love it. But the travel agent never goes with you. The travel agent just sends you on your way. Listen, the only way we're going to be a praying church is if I'm a tour guide, not a travel agent. I got to go to you and I got to say, listen, the reason why you got to pray is because I got to pray. The reason why you need Jesus is because I need Jesus. Come, taste that the Lord is good. Why? Because I'm feasting from that same Lord. When a a pastor goes from being a tour guide to a travel agent, the church dies. Okay? So the first type of prayer that we need to avoid if we are going to pray correctly is we need to avoid outward prayers. We need to avoid prayers that are for the approval of others. The second type of prayer that Jesus says we need to avoid if we are going to pray in a way that honors him is we need to avoid inward prayers, inward prayers. Look what he says in verses seven through eight. He says in verse seven through eight, and when you pray, do not keep on what babbling Babbling, like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this is the one verse in this passage that as I studied it, I really didn't understand. When I first read it, I thought I understood it. But then the more I studied it, I'm like, wow, I didn't understand this passage at all. It was the, the part of the passage, the verse that most stood out to me. As I was studying it this week, because when I saw the word pagans, I thought of pagans the way we think of pagan. Right. When you think of someone who's a pagan, you think of someone who's godless. You think of someone who's an atheist. You think of someone who's agnostic, someone who doesn't pray at all, someone who doesn't care about what God thinks. But the thing about the pagans in Jesus' day is that the pagans in Jesus' day were extremely religious. They were always praying. And one of the things they would do is that they would constantly be repeating the same incantations again and again and again. They, they thought that they would be heard not because of the quality of their prayer, but because of the quantity of their prayer. And so just like when Elijah is fighting the prophets of Baal, and, 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 and they're in Mount Carmel, uh, he lets the prophets of Baal pray for, for the whole day. And they're praying there, and they're they're repeating the same incantations, and they're cutting themselves, and they're bleeding all over because they just want their God Baal to respond. And Elijah's like, well, maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's tired. Maybe you should send a text message. You know what I mean? Like, maybe his voicemail isn't set up. He's just teasing them because they just keep repeating and repeating and repeating. And they think that because they're trying really hard and because they're praying really long, their God was going to answer them. All Elijah has to do is pray one prayer, and God shows up. Because God is not impressed by quantity. God rather have sincere quality than insincere quantity. I just made that up. That was good. I just, I just made that up right now. That, that, that was good. You could tweet that if you want. So, 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 so here's what he's saying. What, what, what he's telling us is that we need to be careful not to pray like the pagans. And the pagans are not godless people. The pagans are very religious people. And the reason why this pitfall, I describe it as inward, it's an inward pitfall that we have to be aware of, is because if you look at it, they say that they, look what it says there, it says, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So the reason why I've described this second pitfall as an inward prayer is because unlike the first people who are trying to get the approval of people, these people are trying to get the approval of God. The problem is, is that they're coming to God in their own name, not in Jesus' name. They think that if they pray hard enough, if they do enough, if I serve enough, if I give enough, if I attend enough, God has to answer me. Listen, that's not how God works. You can't come to God in your name because you bring nothing to the table but your sin. Even your good works are like filthy rags, the Bible says. And so if I go to God in my name, I'm making a major assumption about me and an even bigger assumption about God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the the, the reason why the second prayer is just as religious as the first prayer is because you are going to God and you're saying, God, look at my righteousness. Look at what I've done. Look how great I am. Look how holy I am. And you go to God with your name, your reputation, your righteousness, and God is not impressed. You can't earn a gift. That's not how salvation works. Okay? That's what he's saying to so, so, So how do I know, how do we know if we are con- praying these type of prayers? What are, what are the symptoms that, that we can start displaying if we are trying to pray inward prayers? The, the first symptom I've already mentioned is whose name are you going to God in? Are you going to God and saying, God, look at the week I've had. I have prayed and I have given and I have done all these things and you should accept me because I'm so special. I, I see these people at church every week, right? Here's what you do if this is you. And I've struggled with this too, so I, this is not me pointing fingers because I do this all the time time. When when, when you are approaching God in this way and you are going to God based on what you've done, on the weeks that you've read and prayed and given and haven't yelled at anybody, you come to church and you're confident man and you're singing songs and you're praising and you're like, let me preach. I can preach. I can preach because I, I had a great week this week. That same person seven days later can't even look up during worship because they had a bad week. You know what that means? Every Sunday you're coming to God in your name, not Jesus' name. That's what that means you're praying inward prayers. You're saying, God, hey, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how special I am. That's not how prayer works. That's how prayer in every other religion works. But that's not how it works with God. It doesn't work. You know, another way that you can tell, another symptom that you start to display when you are praying like this, is the word reward. He brings it up multiple times. But but here's what the word reward actually means in Greek. When we think of reward, we think of something that was given to us that maybe we didn't deserve. But in the Greek, the word reward actually means salary. It means a paycheck. It means a wage based on something you've done, okay? Guys, listen, listen, follow me here. One of the ways you can tell that you are religious, one of the ways you can tell that you are praying this type of prayer is by your expectations of God. When God does something good in your life, If your response is not, you're blown away by his grace, but you're actually expecting it because he has to pay you your wage because of all the wonderful things you've done, you're being religious. Listen, there's, there's a Puritan once who was sitting down to eat dinner, and all he had was bread and I think like a piece of fish. And he looked at it and he said, I can't believe that God gives me all of this and Jesus. That's how we should be with everything we get. That's how we should be. But when you go to God and God does something good and you have no gra- a, a, a thanks, thanksgiving, but you actually have entitlement, what it means is that you're just expecting a wage. I've done my job and now it's your job to pay me. Listen, when I get a paycheck in the mail, when I get a, a direct deposit to my bank account from work, I don't sit there and say, oh, what a, what a amazing gift. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the grace. Woo. God's grace. No, no, because I worked. Right? When you work, you expect a paycheck. And if you're not careful, you can go to God looking for wages when the only thing God gives you is grace. Okay? If God gave you what you deserved, it wouldn't be what you think it is. Okay? So 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 that's another thing. And the last symptom, and this one is probably the most important one, the, the, the last symptom that you display when you are praying inward prayers, the last way you can tell if you're praying this way is your emotions. How do you respond emotionally to your prayers? A person who is praying religious inward prayers is always experiencing two different emotions, anger and anxiety, anger and anxiety, anger and anxiety. Here's why. The reason why they experience anger is because if you've done good things, right, and you're expecting a wage. You're expecting God to give you your salary. You're expecting to give you, God what, you, des- give you, give you what you deserve. You're not looking at, at God as father, but you're looking at him as boss, right? And the check doesn't come in. You get angry. Why? Because you deserved God's blessing. I deserved it. And you didn't give it to me. See, when you do that, what that means is you're not looking at God as father. You're looking at him, looking at him as a supervisor, as a business partner. It's not unconditional, it's conditional. And I paid my part, now you got to pay me mine. Give me my, what I deserve. So if you find yourself angry at God because he's not answering your prayers, you're angry, you're bothered, you haven't been in church in forever because you're angry at God, you know what that means? You are going to God in your name and you're expecting your wage. He's not paying it for you and so you're angry at him. So one of the emotions that you're constantly displaying if you're a religious uh, inward prayer person is, is you are experiencing anger. But you know what the other thing you experience all the time is anxiety. Anxiety. Here's why. Because if you really think that God is only going to listen to you based on how well you've done, then when you know you're not doing good, you're anxious. Like when you know you're not praying as much as you should, when you know you're not giving as much as you should, when you know you're not intending as much as you should, you're anxious. You're like, he's not going to answer my prayer because I haven't haven't been checking off my boxes. I haven't been doing the right thing. There's no way he's going to answer me. I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. Listen, if your prayer, the Bible says in Philippians that the God, that prayer should give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. If, if, if you leave prayer and you leave with the anxiety that surpasses all understanding, then it's probably because you think you're earning it. And that week you haven't really done that well. And so you don't think God's going to answer you. Okay. So. Those are the two pitfalls we have to be aware of. Those are the two pitfalls we have to avoid if we are going to be the people that God is calling us to be. And here's the last thing I want to say before I move on to the next point. One of the things that I've learned, and one of the commentators said this as I read it this week, he said that the more holy something is, the more likely Satan will try to attack it. The more likely Satan will try to profane it. Listen, the most powerful thing you can do is pray. There's nothing that terrifies Satan more than a believer in the presence of God praying. And so Satan will do everything in his power to try to stop you from it. And if he can't stop you from it, he's going to try to make you pray wrong. One of these two prayers. If I can't stop you to pray, I'm going to have you pray incorrectly. And the reason why I know that is because when you look at Jesus' life, the time where Satan most attacks Jesus is when Jesus was praying. In the wilderness, Jesus is in the wilderness, he's praying, he's seeking God's will, and that's where the enemy shows up. And the enemy knows he can't stop Jesus from praying, and so he tries to make Jesus pray incorrectly. Right? Right? Then in the garden, same thing. Jesus is in the garden, he's praying, and that's where the enemy most shows up. So in Jesus' life, in the moments where Jesus is most intensely praying is the moments where the enemy is most uh, intensely present. Because he's trying to stop you from doing the only thing that could hurt him. Okay? So the first thing we see in this passage is how not to pray. Jesus says that those are the two pitfalls that we have to avoid if we are going to pray in a biblical way. Then after telling us how not to pray, he switches gears and starts to tell us how to pray instead. And what he does in the next session is he gives us a model for prayer, which a lot of people call the Lord's prayer, but it actually should be called the disciples' prayer because he's not the one that's praying it. We're the ones that are supposed to pray it, right? Look at the model that that he gives us, starting in verse 9. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus here gives us a model for what prayer should actually look like in your life. And he says that your prayer should be marked by four characteristics. There are are four ingredients that your prayer life requires if you are going to pray in a way that honors God. And they all start with A because I love alliteration. Okay, So, so the first one is we need to address correctly. The second thing is we need to adore fully. The third thing we need to do is we need to Accept, I don't know what the, the adverb is, but just accept, you know, it, it, whatever. So then the, thir- and the fourth one is we need to be asking. So we need to address, adore, accept, and ask, okay? Address, adore, accept, and ask. So, so let's, let's look at each one of these, okay? The first thing that Jesus says we need to be doing if we are going to pray in a way that honors God is we need to address God biblically. Well, how do I know? Because he begins by saying, our Father in heaven our father in heaven so so this is this is the most important part of what jesus says if you get this part wrong the rest of your prayer is going to be off if you approach god in any other way but him being your father then you're going to pray wrong every time every time you have to understand and address him according to who he actually is. Not who you think he is, but who he legally is if you are, have placed your faith in Jesus. He is your father, and that's the only way you should approach him. Because when you see him as a father, you approach him as his child. Okay? He says you need to see Call him our Father, and then here's what's crazy, guys. In, in the Aramaic, so this is translated into the Greek, but in the Aramaic, what commentators say is that the word that Jesus used for Father is Abba, and Abba in the Aramaic is a child's way of saying Daddy or Papa. So he's saying you should say our Daddy, our Papa, who are in heaven. And if you're if you're Puerto Rican, you say Papi, okay? But but that's not, that's a whole other story. But 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 you need to say you need to say our Dada, our Uh, our papa this would have offended every single religious leader there they would have been like wait 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 what you call him what how dare you there's a curtain in between us we can only go in there once a year and you have the audacity to call him papa daddy who do you think you are Jesus says, that's, if, you're, if you have faith in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that should be the only way you pray. And you know what's interesting, guys? Someone who doesn't know Jesus can't pray like this. But someone who does know Jesus can fall back into the praying that they shouldn't be praying. See that? So someone who's never met Jesus can't pray the way Jesus is telling us to pray right now. But the danger thing is, the, danger thing is the people who do know Jesus can fall back into the wrong prayers that he said that we should avoid. Only people who have faith in Jesus can say our father. That's it. It's the only people that can say our father. So Jesus says that when you come to the the father, you have to address him correctly. You have to. And if you don't, then the rest of your prayer would be different. Listen, if I don't believe God is my father, then when I approach him, I'm not going to approach him as a child. I'm gonna approach him like an employee. Kind of like the prodigal when he comes back to his father and he has a list of, I'm gonna do this, 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 and this if you let me back in. And he rips the the list up and says, No, 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 you don't get how this works. I'm your dad, he's our father. This is essential. And you need to understand it in order to approach God correctly. After he says that we need to address correctly, then the next thing he says we need to do is we need to adore correctly. Not only do we have to address God correctly, but then we have to adore him uh, correctly. In verse 9, look what he says here in verse 9. He says, uh, in the second half of verse 9, he says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And what, what's interesting about the, the NIV is that the NIV, trans, trans, tans, the, you compare the NIV with the King James and none of the words are similar. The only word that's similar is the word hallowed. And the reason why the NIV keeps the word hallowed is because there's no better English word for it. And the, what the word hallowed there means, it means to set something apart, to sanctify something, to make something ultimate and supreme. That's what it means to hallow something. And, and what you should pray when you pray is you should pray, Lord, make yourself ultimate in my life. I'm going to say something that sounds heretical. And after I say it, I'm going to let it sit there for a while so that you think I'm a heretic, okay? God should not be prominent in your life. God should not be prominent in your life. You know why? Because according to this passage, God shouldn't be prominent. God should be preeminent. You know the difference between prominent and preeminent? Prominent means he's one of the important things in your life, one of many. Preeminent means he's the most. He's the only thing you have. That's the difference. Every Christian will tell you God is prominent. Oh, yeah, God matters, but so does work and so does sports and so does marriage and so do bills. Ah, That's not how God works. God is either preeminent or he's nothing. Hallowed be your name. Become ultimate. Become the most important thing in my life. And you know what? You know what Martin Luther says. And I'm talking about the German one, not the black one. Martin Luther, in his commentator uh, a commentary on this passage, he, here's what he says. He says that it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say hallowed is your name, because that's true, right? God's name is hallowed, regardless of how we feel about it. God's name is ultimate. God's name is lifted up. God's name is separate. No matter how we feel about it, God is God, okay? That's just a fact. But the passage doesn't say hallowed is your name. The passage says hallowed be your name. Martin Luther says the reason why Jesus writes it like that is because every morning we have to convince ourselves again that God's name should be hallowed. Because every morning I wake up, every morning you wake up, there is something smaller than God seated on the throne of your heart. You're worshiping your money. You're worshiping your family. You're worshiping your kids. You're worshiping your success. And so you need to get up every morning and remind yourself, you need to tell yourself, hallowed be God's name. His name is hallowed regardless, but you need to convince yourself to hallow God's name. You need to convince yourself to put him ultimate. That's why we need to pray this. If you don't adore correctly, if you don't put God where he belongs, then the rest of the prayer is not going to make any sense. You and I are worshipers. And every morning we wake up, there's something smaller than Jesus we are worshiping. You're doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. And if you, it doesn't say, hallowed is your name. Says, hallowed be your name. Lord, help me to see you the way Jesus sees you. Okay. So what we see is as we as we approach this 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 prayer, is the first thing we need to do is we need to address God correctly. The second thing we need to do is we need to adore God correctly. Then the third thing we need to do is we need to accept. Accept what? Well, look what it says in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, "Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is" in heaven. One of the the books I read uh, last year on on prayer, he says that prayer, listen to this, is the only time we treat God as God. It's the only time in our life where we treat God as God, where we are the creature and He is the creator, and that's why we struggle with it so much. Because I live my whole life trying to convince myself that I am the creator, not the creature. And so I don't want to pray because I don't want to admit it. It's the only time we treat God as God. We have to accept the fact that it's his kingdom that needs to spread and it's his will that needs to be done. Listen, the reason why so many of us are so bitter and so offended and so angry, most of our fights happen because someone is is stopping our kingdom from spreading and someone is not obeying our will from being done. And you look at people you're like, how dare you, child? How dare you, spouse? How dare you, coworker? How dare you, person that cut me off on the road? This is about my kingdom and my will. And how dare you try to keep that from happening? Almost every time I get angry, nine out of 10 times, is because I'm trying to expand my kingdom and do my will. You have to wake up and every day tell God the kingdom I'm spreading is yours, the will that I'm doing is yours. Crucify my will, destroy my little paper kingdom. And spread your kingdom. Listen, everyone prays about God's kingdom spreading into into Africa, into Europe, into all the places that haven't been reached. How about praying for God's kingdom to spread in your heart? Spread your kingdom here first. Have your will be done here first. And then I'll pray for everybody else. But you have to accept that it's his kingdom, not yours. It's his will, not yours. Okay? Okay? And the last thing we are to pray for, we are to address, adore, accept. And the last thing is to ask. Now, here's the thing. What a lot of us do is we do it opposite. Ask always comes first. Most of our prayers look like grocery lists. Hey, God, I need this. Hey, can you give me some of those? I need two of those. Uh, don't forget that's an aisle sick. Yeah, give me that too. But if you mess the order up, if I forget to address, adore, and accept, I'm not going to ask right. I'm just not. I'm not going to ask correctly because I haven't addressed, adored, and accepted correctly. That's why uh, St. Augustine, he, he writes this lady who, back in the day, there's this lady who needed to learn how to pray. And he says, the reason why you have to keep the order of the Lord's Prayer is because it it actually, every he says every one of us has disordered loves. And our loves are, are are not in the right order biblically. And so we need to pray this way in order to get our loves back in order before we start asking for the stuff we need. Okay? So what do we ask for? Well, he says there are three things that we ask for. Look what it says here in the passage. He says in verse 11, Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so, what Jesus is saying is that there's three things that we should be asking for on a consistent basis. One of them is in the past, one of them is in the present, and the other one's in the future. Okay? The first one is in the past. He talks about how we need to pray for the forgiveness of our debts. Okay? That's past tense, what we've done. And what what what's interesting is that when I first started studying this passage, I thought the word debt actually meant like debt, like they owe someone money. But that's not what it is. In the New Testament, there are five different terms for the word sin. And debts is probably, I would argue, the best description of sin in the Bible. Because you are in debt to God. You literally owe him something. And you can't pay it off. And so the first thing that we're asking for is in the past, God, forgive me of what I've done. And he says, there's there's a a condition though. He says, make sure that for you uh, uh, and lead us, uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Listen, listen. He connects the relationship with God with the relationship with other people. He says, the reason why you can't show grace to others is because you haven't embraced my grace for you. The reason why you can't forgive others is because you have forgotten how much I have forgiven you. Listen, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what people have done to you. But I promise you, I promise you. And this is not me trying to minimize what you went through. What you did to Jesus was way worse. Okay? And so if I'm at home today, to, if I go home today, well, it's Sunday, so maybe not today, but Monday, if, I go, if tomorrow I get something in the mail and I find out one of my relatives died and he left me $200 million, which God knows I don't have a relative like that because my family's broke. But, but just, let's just say, let's say I have a wealthy white family. And so, 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 so I get a check in the mail, okay, I get a check in the mail and I find out I just got $200 million through inheritance. If one of my my boys calls me and says, hey, bro, man, I know I owe you 20 bucks, but I'm sorry I haven't gotten it to you. If I turn around and say, bro, you better give me those 20 bucks. What do you mean you don't have my money? You better give me my money. I got $200 million. Why am I worried about $20? Come on. That's what he's saying. He connects the two. He connects the two. Amen, brother. It's too quiet. <laughs> okay? That's what he does. He connects the two. So the first thing we're praying for is past tense, our sin. The second thing we're praying for is present tense. Because he says, he says uh, uh, give us today our daily bread. That's present tense. Every morning you wake up, you're asking God not for your weekly bread, not for your monthly bread, not for your yearly bread, See, a lot of us want yearly bread. See, the reason why a lot of us work so hard, the reason why a lot of us want money so bad, it's not because we, 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 we love money, we're going to be good stewards of it. It's because we want to get to a place where we don't have to trust God anymore. I need money because I don't need you. That's why. That's why he prays he says daily bread. That's why but prosperity people bother me so much. Here's why prosperity people bother me so much. Oh, God wants to make you rich, and God wants to give you all everything in the world. Really? I don't see that in the prayer. I, last time I checked, Jesus died naked on a cross with no house. Amen. So how does that work? And what this prayer shows you is that God is going to meet your needs. He's not going to meet your greeds. Amen. Okay? We want God to take care of our greeds. God only promises to meet our needs. Amen. Hallelujah. He's not about luxury. He's about necessity. Okay? But that's, I, that's just my life. I check my bank account often because I just want to make sure I'm okay. But listen, I can have $0 in my bank account. And as long as Jesus still died for me, I'm okay. Amen. So the second thing, the second present thing that we need to be praying for is our daily bread. You know, one of the things that the Lord has been convicting me about lately. And some of you, many of you don't know this, but I, for the past two months or so, have been having some pretty serious uh, health issues. My, my chest has been hurting me really bad. I've had serious abdominal pain. I've done EKGs. I've done ultrasounds. I've done CT scans. I've done everything. And the doctors have no idea what it is. No idea. But what's crazy is, is that the Lord has ministered to me this week by that concept of daily bread. Because when you're young and you're in your 30s, you think, well, I got 20, 30, 40 years. Dude, I'm just praying for to have a day where I don't have pain. That'll humble you. I can't ask for a decade. I'm just asking for it today. Sometimes God puts us in places. I don't know if I'm going to have this pain forever because the doctors don't know what it is to this day. They don't know what it is. They might be the thorn I have for the rest of my ministry. But I'll tell you what, it's going to force me to pray for daily bread. And like the Israelites, I'm not going to be able to go out and grab a bunch of manna for the the rest of the week. Because any manna that I try to take for tomorrow is going to rot. Because God gives me new mercies every day. So, the first thing we pray for is past. The second thing we pray for is present. And the last thing we pray for is is, is future. It's future because he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's, That's future tense. So you're praying past for your past sins, you're praying for your present needs, and then you're, you're asking God to protect you from future temptation. Listen, in order for you to pray that, you're admitting that you're weak. You're, weak. you're saying, God, I know what I'm going to do if I'm put in that position, and so please keep me from that position. Please keep me from that area because I know what I'm going to do if I ever get there, and so just please just keep me from being there altogether. Okay. That's an important prayer. Because a lot of times when you really struggle with an addiction, whether that's pornography or or, or drugs or or, or whatever it is, money, something related to money, what we do is we we don't pray ahead of time. We accidentally, accidentally end up in that place again in front of the laptop or in front of the the, the drugs or in front of whatever it is. And we end up there like, oh, I got here again. I guess I got to do it. But when you pray preemptively, Lord, keep me from even being in those positions because I know what I'll do if I'm there. That's how we should pray. Amen. Okay. So let's go back to the three points. The first thing Jesus does is he gives us the pitfalls that we need to avoid. The second thing Jesus does is he gives us the model that we should be uh, following. And the last thing he does in this passage is he gives us a position of prayer. Now, the question is, what does position of prayer have anything to do with what we're talking about? You would think the sermon would be over by then, right? And some of you are probably hoping it was over, right? But, but, but. <laughs> But, so we know what not to do, right? We know what to do, so that's it. Most sermons in America stop right here, right? Most sermons, most pastors in America will say, don't do this, but do this. Now go and do likewise. Here's the problem. A lot of us already knew what not to do, and a lot of us already knew what to do, but we're not doing it. And so I can't just tell you to go do it because you can't do it. And if you could do it, you wouldn't need a Savior. And so in order for us to avoid the pitfalls, in order for us to live up to the model, we have to understand our position. We have to understand who we are in Jesus. Knowing what not to do, knowing what to do is not enough. And we know it's not enough because if if it was enough, then the law would have been enough. But the law is not enough. The law is not enough. We need something bigger. We need someone greater. In order for us to avoid the pitfalls, in order for us to live up to the model, we need to understand our position. And by position, I mean our position in the gospel, our position in Christ. You need to understand who you are if you are going to act how you should, okay? And in this passage, there are are several threads that remind us of, of our position in Christ. Okay, The first thread that reminds us of our position is the word reward. Remember what I said the word reward means? It means a wage and or a salary. So it means that you get what you deserve. You know what's crazy about getting what you deserve? In Romans 6.23, God says that there's other wages that we deserve. He says that the wages that we deserve, the wages of sin is death. So you want to talk about rewards? You want to talk about what we deserve? That's what we deserve. And so the question is, if that's what we actually deserve, what we deserve is the wages of death. If what we deserve is separation from God, we what we deserve is punishment, why do we not get the wages of death? The reason why we do not get the wages of death is because Jesus took the wages of death in our place. So now, by his grace, we get the gift of salvation, not the wages of death. You know, one of the things, again, I'm going after prosperity people today. I don't care. One of the things that bothers me about Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and fill in the blank of whoever else you want to put in that category, the thing that bothers me about prosperity people is that they're always talking about how great of a gift Jesus is. Jesus is such a great gift giver. He's the ultimate gift giver. You go to God and he's the ultimate gift giver. Jesus will give you every gift that your soul longs for. Listen, Jesus is so much more than the gift giver. Jesus is the gift. He is the gift. He is the gift. I don't need anything else from him. He is my gift. Come on. That's what we need to see. I go to God and I say, the only reward I deserve is death. And yet because of Jesus, the only reward I get is life. That's enough. That's enough. You are the gift, not the gift giver. You're the gift. So the first thread is that word reward. That It reminds us of our position. But, but the, other, the other thread is the, the our father. You know, one of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 19 and Matthew 21. So in this same book, he talks about how we need anything that we ask in his name, God will answer. He says, hey, make sure when you pray, you ask for things in my name. But then what's interesting is in this prayer, he doesn't say anything about praying in his name. And the question is why? Well, John Stott says that the reason why Jesus doesn't tell us to pray in his name is because that phrase, our Father, is the same as saying in Jesus' name. Listen, the only person on planet Earth that called God Father consistently was Jesus, okay? The only time in his life where Jesus doesn't call God Father was at the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus at the cross was treated like an orphan so that the orphans might be treated like children, Jesus at the cross was forgotten so that we can be remembered. In his moment of greatest need, God did not listen to Jesus so that in our moment of greatest need, God could listen to us. So now I can call God Father, and by calling God Father, I am praying in Jesus' name. Because the only way I can call him Father is if I am in Jesus. So since I am in Jesus, the Bible says that God, listen, this is crazy. But you got to believe it. It says that God now, because we are in Christ, God loves you as much as he loves his son. God wants to honor you as much as he wants to honor his son. He is pleased with you to the same degree that he's pleased with his son. And if you don't believe it, then you don't believe the gospel. And then the final thread that reminds us of our position in Christ is when he says that we should pray, your will be done. Your will be done. You know why? Because one of the commentators that I looked at, he said that that when you compare the Greek with the prayer Jesus prays here, you compare it to the prayer that Jesus prays in the garden, it's scary how similar the two prayers are. Much of the language that Jesus uses here is the same language he uses in the garden. So Jesus is telling us to pray this prayer, and then he actually lives it and prays that prayer in the garden. Jesus calls him Father, and then he talks about how your will be done, not my will be done. Okay, Jesus gets to the end of his life and says, your will be done, not my will be done. What's crazy, though, is when we pray, God, your will be done, we are treated like children. When Jesus prayed, your will be done, he was treated like God's enemy. Jesus took the ultimate cup so that now by by faith in him, we can take the smaller cups. Jesus went through the ultimate storm, so now by faith in him, we know he's going to be faithful in the smaller storms. You know, one of the things that I, I, I find interesting is that when you look at Paul and when you look at, there's two people that, that I'm reminded of, in, in Paul and Job. Paul in the New Testament, Job in the, New, in the Old Testament. One of the things that Paul has praised for the church in Ephesus, he prays for the church in Philippi, and he prays for the church in Colossae. And, and, and every time Paul prays for these people, these people were going through terrible suffering, terrible persecution, right? And what's crazy is Paul never once prays for their circumstances. He never prays for their circumstances to change. He never prays for the emperor to be dethroned. The, the but instead what he prays is I pray that you would give them an amazing, incredible view of the gospel. Help them understand who you are. Help them to get an idea of the, of the breadth and the width and the depth of your love. If they understand who you are, then it will change what they're struggling with. Most of what we struggle with is our our perspective of it. It's not the circumstance. Because someone might be going through the same thing you're going through and be totally fine. It's not the circumstance. It's your response to the circumstance. But once you understand that God is your father and loves you and has accepted you and Jesus died for you, man, that changes how you pray. It changes how you view things. That's why when you look at the story of Job, Job is going through way more suffering than any of us will go through in a a lifetime. He's going through intense suffering and he's complaining and he's asking God why, 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 why. God shows up and doesn't tell him why. God tells him who. He said, I am the God of the universe. Were you there when I created everything? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? He never tells him why. He tells him who. And once Job understands who, he doesn't care about the why. Because if you're for me, who can be against me? And so what we see is this. To the degree that we understand our position in prayer, to that same degree, we will avoid the pitfalls and live up to the model. Amen? Let's pray.